Well, now that uh, David has become king and the land that God had promised to David is now secure, David's attention is now going to draw to, back to a promise that he had made to an old friend many years before. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see a man by the name of Jonathan. Jonathan was not only the son of King Saul, he was also David's best friend. And what we find there is that, that Jonathan begins to beg David to make a covenant promise to him. This is what he asked. He asked, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off my, your steadfast love for my house forever. Here's what was going on. David, uh, or, or, or Jonathan knew that God's promise to David was going to be fulfilled, that David would be the next king, which means that Jonathan would not be the next king. And he accepted this. He was okay with this. However, he wanted to make sure that he had some kind of security moving to the future. He, he, he needed David to promise that he wouldn't bring him any harm and he wouldn't harm his descendants. Instead, so he, he begs him for what is in, translated here as his steadfast love. Just promise me that you are going to love me. There's never going to be an end to your love. It's going to be continuing to your love. It's going to be unconditional. And you will continue to show it and extend it to me and to my family. Swear that you will do this very thing. And we find out that David did make that exact covenant. And what's interesting is when you read the story, you find out that that pretty much did it for Jonathan. In other words, going into that conversation, he was nervous, he was afraid, he was worried, he was racked with fear. But after he gives him that promise, all of a sudden, now he is secure in the present and he's secure in the future. You know, I wish it was that easy this morning. I wish as a pastor I could just get up and basically say, hey, I want to remind you of God's covenant love. I want to let you know how much God loves you and that he has sworn that he will forever, for all time, for his people, continue to show his steadfast love to them. And I wish that was enough. Trust me, I've tried it. I've showed up with people who are going through difficulties and I go, hey, just a reminder, God loves you. And they usually respond, hey, that's great. But and then they tell me a lot of other things. So what I have found is it oftentimes takes us more than just hearing that God loves us. We have to actually see exactly how that works, how that's actually lived out. And that's why I'm so grateful for 2 Samuel chapter 9, because in it we see that very thing. We see David, and the way that David demonstrates kindness, goodness, and steadfast love to a young man by the name of, of, of Mephibosheth is the same exact way in which God promises to continue to show his steadfast love for you and for me. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to talk about God's love today. You're like, wow, this is a really schizophrenic church. Last week, last couple of weeks, you talk about God coming, slaying people with a sword. That was rough. Now all you want to talk about is God's love. All I can say is we preach whatever the text tells us to preach. Amen? And so we're going to talk about God's steadfast love and what exactly that means and what exactly that looks like. We have three marks of God's steadfast love that we see within the text. First of all, God's steadfast love is unchanging. It's unchanging. Look, if you will, at verse 1. The Bible says, and David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him, note this word, kindness for Jonathan's sake. May I show anyone that I could show kindness for Jonathan's sake? The word kindness there is, is, is the Hebrew word hesed or chesed. It's 
excuse me, I got something caught in my throat, chesed, and it's actually the same exact Hebrew word that's translated over in, 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 in um, first Samuel chapter 20, what I read to you in the beginning, when, Dave, when, when uh, Jonathan was saying, promise me your steadfast love, this is the same word, it's the word hesed. And this is what the whole chapter is about, it's the emphasis of the whole thing. We know that because of the many times it's emphasized. It's used in verse 1, it's used in verse 3, and then again in verse 7. What hesed is, or what this kindness is, is unique to a covenant relationship. It's the kind of love and compassion and joy and intimacy that people enjoy with only within this special covenant promise that two people or two parties make to one another. And so what David is doing now is he is looking to act and be obedient to that covenant promise that he had made to Jonathan. So now he's going around trying to find out, does Jonathan have any uh, descendants, any sons, any grandsons that I can show this kind of love and this kind of mercy to? So he goes to a man uh, that we find that we read about named Ziba. Now, Ziba was basically the, the, the chief steward or the chief servant of Saul when he was alive. And if anybody would have known, if Saul had any remaining, uh, and Jonathan had any remaining um, descendants, he would have known it. And sure enough, he knew it. And he told him, he said, you know what, there is one young man, a man by the name of Mephibosheth, who lives afar off in the house of, house of Makur in a place called Lodabar. So it's just a place in, far off in the distance. And so as soon as David hears that there is actually a, a young man, a son of Jonathan still remaining, he immediately moves to be faithful to his promise to show kindness to him. So he, he sends for him to be brought back. Now, at right here, I've got to stop because I can't help but to think of all the reasons why David has, all the reasons or, or, or really excuses he could have made not to be faithful to the promise that he had made to Jonathan all those years ago. Number one, it was all those years ago. A lot of time had ultimately passed. It had been 15 to 20 years since he had made that promise. And there's one thing that I know about promises. Promises are not hard to keep for a short period of time. They are hard and often not kept, almost never kept, forever. The longer the period of time goes by, it seems like it begins to deteriorate that promise all the more. When somebody first says, I'll do that, they're almost always going to be faithful immediately, but over time their faithfulness is going to wane, but not, John, not, not David's. So we see time went by, but we also see that circumstances ultimately had changed. Things are much different now. For one, Jonathan is no longer alive. He's dead. How easy would it have been for David to be able to sit there and say, you know what, the guy died. He's not around to be able to really hold my feet to the fire and tell me, hey, you promised. Nobody else really knows about this covenant promise. Things have changed from way back then when I made that decision and made that covenant to him. Number three, he could sit back and say, well, you know what, they were just words. You know, we say a lot of things in the heat of the moment. When, I mean, there was my buddy, Jonathan, and he was hurting, and he was worried, and, and he was concerned, and I couldn't console him. I couldn't help him with anything. And he kept saying, make a promise, make a promise, make a promise. So what do you do? You make a promise. But they were just words. You don't really hold to them. So he had all these excuses of why he wouldn't hold to this particular promise, all these excuses that many of us might even be able to understand. Now, the covenant that they were experiencing and made, the closest kind of covenant that we have today is really that, that mimics it is really a relationship in marriage. When you said, I do, you were making a covenant promise to that person that you were going to love them and you were going to show them continual love and kindness. Did you know that? 
Just a reminder, okay? Just a reminder. We need a little bit of that reminding. That's what we were, in essence, promising. When you meet with people and their marriage is beginning to fall apart and they want to throw in the towel, you know what I remind them of? I did your wedding. Or I was at your wedding. Or I sit there and I say to them, I said, do you remember the vows of your wedding? No, I don't remember the vows of your wedding. Let me just give you a hint. It said something like this. For better or worse, for richer and poorer, in sickness and in health, right? Till what? Till death do you part. You know what they say? Well, that was a long time ago. It's a long time ago I ended up making that promise. You know, a lot of things have changed since that time. I'm different. I know she's different. I mean, everything has changed during that time. And you know what? Everybody used those words. They're just words. But for David, that covenant promise, it didn't matter how much time or how much difficulty or how things have changed. And it wasn't just about giving words. His word was his word. And in the same exact way, God's word to us, that he makes a covenant promise to you and I to constantly show us kindness, to constantly demonstrate his everlasting love for us. He, he means it. It never fades away. It never falls apart. Look, I know many of you probably, when you buy something, you probably look for a good warranty on it, right? I mean, we love warranties. Anybody love warranties, right? In fact, when you buy it, they go, did you get a warranty on that? Matter of fact, did you get a warranty? It's a really, really good warranty. The problem with warranties is most people don't understand the warranty. Would you agree? that there's all these different types of warranties. Uh, just thinking of some of them, there are implied warranties, express warranties, lifetime warranties, express warranties, limited warranties, limited lifetime warranties. There are full warranties. The truth of the matter is nobody knows what in the world these things mean. It's basically a contract between the seller and the buyer. What your essence is saying is, hey, if you buy my stuff, this is what I'll do for you. If it breaks, I'll either fix it, I'll replace it, or, 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 what? or I'll give you your money back. And all of these different types of warranties, though, they never really seem to work out for me. And I don't really understand them. Normally, I sit there and I'll read on the box that says, has a warranty. All right, well, it broke. And I don't really know if it really covers it or not. So I take whatever's broken. I take it to the store. I put it on the counter. And I go, hey, does that cover this? And what do they normally say? No, and we're sorry, sir. Your warranty doesn't cover that. Had you been here 13 minutes before, that it would it would have covered that. But we're sorry that that it's 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 run out. Or somebody else will sit there. It's either look. It's either that it's no longer good that it's expired, or number two, I voided it somehow because of something that I ended up doing. Or ultimately, the warranty doesn't cover whatever it is that went wrong with it. Does anybody feel my pain? Yes. And so I remember one time, we, we haven't really bought very many new cars, but one day uh, we bought a new car, and I thought, honey, we need this car because it's got a warranty. It's got a three-year, 36,000-mile bumper-to-bumper warranty. What do you have to worry? What do you have to be concerned? It's all right there. Bump, it says bumper-to-bumper. Bumper. And so I remember something happening and took the car down to the dealership, and I thought, hi, you're not going to get me this time, dealer. And I sat back, and I got my little popcorn, and I got a Coke out of the Coke machine, and they said, Mr. Krykowski, can we talk to you for a moment? And I'm like, this can't be good. What? Just, just go and fix it. Go, go, go fix what's wrong. And they're like, sir, we're sorry, but, it, but what's wrong with the vehicle is not covered in your warranty. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got it right here. It's a bumper-to-bumper -bumper warranty. It's got to be covered. And they sit back and say, no, sir, it just so happens that it doesn't cover that. And I said, then apparently you don't understand your own warranty. And they sat back and said, yes, we do. Sir, we kindly do. And I said, no, I don't think you do. Because what's broken is between the bumpers. And if it's broken between the bumper-to-bumper -bumper warranty, it should ultimately be what? It should be covered. 
Let me just tell you this. I don't have a whole application for this except for this pure joy. I am so thankful that my salvation is not some cattywampus, strange reading, hard to interpret um, uh, warranty, but rather a clear spoken promise covenant of God. I praise God for that. He says, look, if you repent and turn from your sin and place your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, I will forgive your sins, past, present, and future. I can't love you any more than I do, and I can't love you any less on your worst, worst day. I will show you steadfast love all the days of your life from here into eternity. And that promise never expires. You and I cannot void it, and there is no part of that that is not ultimately covered. God's steadfast love for you is unchanging. Amen? Number two, God's steadfast love is more than charity. It's more than charity. Now notice, if you will, in verse five, after Mephibosheth is found, he's brought before the king. Here's what we understand. David takes no time, wastes no time showing him hesed, showing him kindness, showing him this abundance of love to him. In Del Ralph Davis, in his book, he actually lists three ways in which he shows his kindness. He says, first of all, he offered him protection. If you look, look at verse 6, David said to him, he says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Why do you think at that moment when he first sees him, he says the first word out of his mouth is, Do not fear. Because that's exactly what Mephibosheth was doing. Mephibosheth understood that he was, he was really the enemy to the king, really, by birth. Uh, back then, if, if you were the king of the, previous, of the previous regime, the first thing the new king and the new regime would do would hunt you down and put you to death. And so in the beginning, we read about this, that he's in some guy's house, some far away. He's in self-imposed exile, trying to stay out of sight, out of mind from David, because he knows that because of an enemy, he deserves ultimately to die, and he doesn't want to die. So for him, think of the fear that he lived with for being discovered, and then one day, somebody knocks on your door. Those fears are realized, and they say, we're the guards. We want to bring you back to stand before the king. He was terrified. And in his mercy, the very first words that the king says to him is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He promises this protection. He also pr promises some provision. If you look next, he says, and I will restore you. He gives, he gives all the land of Saul for your father, of your father. I'm going to give you everything that Saul had is now going to become yours. If you read down in verse 9, you find out how all this works out. He's going to give him the land. We don't know whose land it was at this point. Probably mine is the way, you know, and then somebody's going to give it away. But, but no, it was just somebody, whether it was Zeba's or who, we don't know whose it was. But David said, this land is going to return now to his grandson. And Zeba, this is what I want you to do. You serve Saul, and now I want you to serve him. And what you're going to do is you're going to work, you're going to work this land, you're going to bring about produce. And he goes, and it's going to be, all be used to be able to care for this young man. Is this an amazing picture of grace? I mean, here he is, his life is not only spared, but now he's also being given everything that is, that is needed for life as well. But if you think that's a lot, notice the very last thing. He not only gives him protection, he not only gives him provision, but he also gives him a position. This is mo the most beautiful of all. Look at verse 6. And he and you shall eat at my table always. It's fascinating. This is, this is one thing I know I, I respect I really do respect every charitable institution that we have here in Nassau County. I think they're wonderful. Whether it be Barnabas, whether it be the Goodwill, whether it be the Dove, whatever those stores are, 
and, and they do a great thing. They're basically taking things and then they're, 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 they're giving it for a very good price to people who are genuinely in need within our community. And that a, that's a wonderful thing. That demonstrates the love and the heart of Jesus Christ for sure. And I, and I think all people who end up giving to those things, maybe you've given to Barnabas or you've donated to all those things, and I think that's wonderful. I think it's awesome. But the whole idea of charity is such a strange thing to me. And let, let me explain what I mean by that. The whole idea of this practice of charity and the way that it works with these different uh, organizations, the whole system is predicated upon people like you and I giving others stuff that we no longer want or we no longer need. In other words, we don't usually sit there and go, hey, Barnabas, I got something for you. I just bought $7,000 worth of furniture and I want to bring it down to you. Normally, it's, honey, uh, it's time to get some of this out of our house. We have more stuff then we have space. So right around springtime, people begin to do a little spring clean. Some of you are smiling. I think this, this is for some of you. And you look around and go, man, some of this has just got to go. We got 16 lamps, right? We don't need 16 lamps. So you choose what you want, what you want to preserve. Then what do you do with the rest? Well, you put a little sticker on it. And you, and you put it at markdown prices and you have a garage sale. Anybody, right? And you take it outside, and then your people come, and they begin to buy the stuff that you don't even want. And, of course, at markdown prices, and then you haggle back and forth, and you have a lamp, and it's, you have 10 cents on it. And you go, I'm not paying more than two cents. And you're like, all right, just take the lamp. All right, you take my two cents. You make your six bucks. But at the end of the yard sale, at the very end of the yard sale, some of you act like you've never had a yard sale. <laughs> at the very end of the yard sale, you know what's left? What nobody wants right? And there's a little bit of stray thing over here. There's a little doodad over here. You don't even know what that is. You don't even know what the doodad is. You even have things written on them saying, take it. It's for free. And nobody takes it. And you live in Nassau County, right? And nobody ends up taking it. And so you sit there and you go, what am I going to do to this? And, and your wife just sits there and goes, man, that's too much for the trash. Trash man, they ain't never going to take all this. There ain't no way. We're going to have to take a dump. It's going to cost a lot of money. I got an idea. Let's take it to goodwill, right? Let's take it to one of these places. Let's take it to them. And now here's the thing. I'm not trying to down those institutions. I told you, great respect. Even when people give out of maybe, it, which is not the greatest motivation or the purest motivation, they're giving. I thank God for it. Here's why. Because the people who ultimately receive it, it's a great blessing to them. Even something that you and I might think is trash or throw away or leftovers or whatever it is, they may sit there and they may love it and they may cherish it. But there's one shortfall with charity, however. The problem with charity is that as good as it is, it, it, it doesn't change the person's position. It, 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 not only, it, it only makes the position of poverty more bearable. It may take the sting out of poverty for the moment, but at the end of the day, the person is still in poverty and still need of more charity the next day and the next day and the next day. It's a wonderful thing, but there's a shortfall with it. It doesn't ultimately change anything. But what we find is, but God's steadfast love towards us is more than charity, as demonstrated in David's love shown to Mephibosheth. I guarantee if David, at that day, when he sat there and he goes, I'm not going to kill you, man. I bet you Mephibosheth would have sat there and said, well, I'm the enemy of you. You're not going to kill me? That's good enough for me. That's enough for me. I'll go off and I'll live in exile for the rest of my life. You'll never have to see my face again. I am overjoyed with your willingness not to kill me, your enemy. And then when he sits back and he goes, but you know what? I'm also, your dad's going to have a yard sale. 
and I'm going to give you all that stuff, and I'm going to make sure all the stuff that your dad doesn't want, because he's, he's dead now, I'm going to give you all of this ultimate stuff, and it's ultimately got to be yours. I'm sure he sat there and not only enjoyed the mercy that he was shown for not being killed, but also enjo- enjoyed the grace that he was being showed, that he was being given stuff that he knew that he didn't deserve. And then, as though he couldn't take any more, his mind explodes, and he sits there and he says, and from here on out, I'm going to change your position. Up to this point, you've been my enemy. But now I'm changing your position because now you're going to eat at my table every night. You're going to come and you're going to eat with me. He changes his entire position. What is he, in essence, saying? He's taking him from being an enemy to a son. Who eats every day at your table? Not an enemy, not a friend, not a neighbor, but only your own children. Your own family eats there day after day after day. And here's what God ultimately does. When God comes to us, he tells us, he says, listen, this is at least what gravitated in my heart today. I'm telling you, for every person who is born again, for everybody who truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ, who have truly come to understand the depth of their depravity, the depth of their sin, and their depth of guilt before God and the rebellion against him, When we just hear the fact that through Jesus Christ, our Savior, he's taken away the penalty of death, that is enough for me. That's enough for me. That's enough for me to keep moving. That's enough for me to be able to keep moving through this life. Enough for me to be able to have joy. Enough for me to know that God loves me. But when God turns around and says, but that's not enough for me, I'm also going to supply for you and give you life and give it more abundantly. That's more than I can ever deserve. But when he sits back and says, but now I'm going to make you no longer a slave, but now you're going to be in my house forever, eating with me, fellowshipping with me, that's more than my heart can stand. The Bible says here that God's love for us is more than charity. And finally, number three, God's steadfast love is unconditional. There are two ways in which the author really describes Mephibosheth in the story. The first is as an enemy. We, we read that. We see it. It's really what the author is trying to do. In verse 6, he described Mephibosheth as this way. He said, Mephibosheth, the, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. You see that? He's, he's basically going, hey, don't, don't forget, these are two enemies towards each other. This grace and mercy he's showing, he's showing it to an enemy, not a son. So he's trying to say that. His whole point of that is to show that Mephibosheth was completely undeserving of the grace and the mercy that he was showing. Do you get that? That's, that's the whole point of the story. Completely undeserving. But then he describes him in a different way. He doesn't just describe the fact that he was an enemy. He also describes the fact that he was a cripple. He actually gives us this. He mentions it twice. In verse 3, it says, Ziba told David of Mephibosheth that he was crippled in his feet. Then in verse 13, and note this, it says, so he, at all, he, he ate always at the king's table, and just so that we don't forget, he says how he was lame in both his feet. Here's the significance. Enemy is teaching us that he didn't deserve any of what he was receiving from, from David. The fact that he was crippled was showing that he could do nothing to earn any goodness from the king at all. He was a cripple. What in the world is he going to do? What act, what work is he going to be able to do to get David to be sit there and go, hey, you've done enough, now I'm going to bless you. He can't. That's the whole point. In fact, I believe it's the author's point at the very end in verse 13. It says, he, he sat always at the king's table and then reminded him, and he was lame in both feet, to remind people like you and I that we are children of God, not because of anything we deserve, but because of what we don't deserve. And guess what? Not because we, we, we've earned it, because you and I can't earn any of the goodness of God. 
That's his point. That's what he's trying to get across within this text. Now, now here's his response. When you really get that, I mean, really get it. Look look at verse 8. Here's how he responds. He says, and he paid homage. This is Mephibosheth. And he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Have you ever felt that way? Overwhelmed with the grace and the mercy of God and his forgiveness of God and sat back and go, why would you be so good to me? Why would you show so much kindness? Why would you always show me kindness? Why would you always show me love, not only in this life, but also in the life to come? Why would you always do such a thing? Well, we have the answer to this question here. See, he's thinking, what is it about me that brought me all these blessings? He can't see it, but he's really asking the wrong question. It's not because of him that he's received the steadfast love of God. It's because of another. It's because of another. If you look back in verse 1, we read this in the beginning. He says, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He wasn't showing kindness to Mephibosheth because he felt bad for Mephibosheth or because, or, or, or because he was a good guy or because he had done something for David. He did it in a promise and on behalf of somebody else, his father. You say, well, what's the significance of this? Man, it's the perfect picture of the gospel. Let me explain. Let me give you this illustration real quick. Let me tell you how they would make this covenant. It wasn't just that they go, hey, cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. All right, I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. All right, good. This was much more profound. What they would end up doing is two people who would want to enter into this type of covenant, they would sit back and they would take a series of animals. They would take a heifer. They would take... Um, they would take a ram, they would take a dove, and then they would take these animals and they would dig a trench. And then on both sides of this trench, they would literally cut these animals in half and they would lay them on either side of this trench. And then whoever you were making a covenant with, you'd embrace arms and then you'd make and recite the covenant that you were making together. I swear, I swear, this is what we're going to do. This is what I promise to do for you. This is what I promise to do for you. And then you'd walk through that trench with those animals on the side. The significance of the animals being slain and on the side was in essence saying, if I don't do what I promise for you to do, he goes, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And so that was the co- that's how serious this covenant promise is. You say, well, what's the significance of that? I think the real significance is you got to go back and then you got to go forward. When you go back to Genesis chapter 15, we see a covenant that, that God makes to Abraham. Do you remember when he comes to Abraham and, and Abraham doesn't deserve it? He doesn't deserve the calling of God, the love of God, the salvation of God. And he comes to him and he says, you know what? I am going to make your name great amongst the nations and I'm going to make your children as many as the sands of the seashore and the stars of the heavens. And he sits back and God makes this covenant. Well, one day as he's making this covenant with him, he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees the same thing. He sees a trench. It's divided. He sees these parted animals that have been cut in half on both sides of it. Well, as he's having this vision, the only thing missing was him. And that is that he sees this smoldering pot and he sees this flaming torch and it passes through that, those particular slain animals in light of this covenant promise that he's making for him. Why doesn't Abraham walk through with God? The picture of the smoldering pot and the, is a representation of God and he goes through alone, but yet... Abraham doesn't go through with him. What's the significance of that? This is what God was saying. I'm making a covenant with you. You're going to be the beneficiary. Now, really what the covenant is, is, hey, you obey me, your people obey me. I'm going to love you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you all these things. But here's what you need to understand. 
It's really unconditional upon you, upon what you do. The reason that he walked through, in essence, is he says, I'm going to make this promise, and it's not going to depend on how good you are. It's going to depend on how good I am, and this is what I promise you. If I don't do for you what I say that I'm going to do, may the same thing that happened to these animals happen to me. But here's the key. If you're not faithful, if you're not faithful, then what's going to happen is the same thing that happened to these animals is going to happen to me. There's the picture of the gospel. God comes out and says, I am going to love you and care for you and you are going to be my people and I'm going to be your God and I'm going to love you forever and it's not dependent upon you. And I'm not going to bless you because of anything you did, but I'm going to bless you because of another person. Who was it that was the other person, the person of Jesus Christ? We failed, yet he paid the price for us, securing that sacrifice and that love for us, not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus Christ did. Now, in the very beginning, this is what I said. I said to you, I said, you know what? All week I've been struggling with this application. What do I do with application? What do I do? You know, normally, what does this have to do with your marriage? What does it have to do with this? What does it have to do with that? Let me, let me give you just a couple things. These are three things that we need to enjoy it, but you run with this or to, to, to apply it. Number one, we just need to enjoy this truth. I know for me, I'm so sensitive to my sin, I could preach all day long on sin. It is much harder for me to preach on the goodness of God. You know why? Because I know my sin a lot more than I know the goodness of God. But what you and I have to do is spend far more time thinking about God's goodness, thinking about his mercy, thinking about how it's undeserving, think how it's been demonstrated to us. And then when we do that, then we respond in true worship. In light of this, who should be getting the glory in this place? Me? You? Only one. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. What's the third way that we should apply this? Not only think on it, and not only worship God for it, we also need to bend it outward. All of this grace and all of this mercy that is shown, we are Mephibosheth. You get that, right? We are, were the enemies of God. We were the ones that could, were undeserving. We were the ones that could not earn our salvation. And yet God in his great grace said, who can I show my loving kindness to? And we responded in faith to him. And he said, I'm going to love you forever. That is a lot of grace. That is a lot of mercy. But God is never intended for you and I just to be mercy and, 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 and grace hogs, but to take it and to bend it out. In every relationship we have with our spouse, with our friends, with the people within the body of Christ, look, many of us, maybe we might show mercy. Somebody does something to us and we decide we're not going to retaliate with mercy. But how many of us actually show grace that to our enemies, we're not only not going to retaliate, but we are going to demonstrate goodness to them. That's a demonstration of the gospel lived out and the demonstration of what this looks like when it's lived out. Let me say this. I, I can give you those applications just for a moment, but the truth of the matter is, let me just tell you what it does in my heart. It's hard to come up with specific application because all it really makes me want to do is love him more and honor him more. Not because I think that it will make him love me more. I've already lo I can't love him more. This is what it does not make me want to do. When I hear that God promises that he's going to love me no matter what, the last thing in the world that I want to do is go and sin all the more. How many times have you heard somebody or maybe even said to yourself, well, if God's going to forgive me anyway, let me just go ahead and do it. You don't understand this kind of covenant love. 
you don't understand it. If you've been gripped by it, then you say, I don't want to go in that direction, not because I'm trying to earn God's love. I'm not trying to get it. It's already given it to me. He's already granted it ultimately to me. So when I look at this, I'm just overwhelmed with his, his goodness in me. And I think that's the response, to be overwhelmed, to have joy, to praise God, to live it out in our own lives. I actually was struggling with application so much. I guess if I were to say it another way, here's how I would say it. This does it for me. Remember in the beginning? We sat there and said some need to be able to repent and come to God if they just could understand how God loved them. Well, guess what? It does it for me. I repented over several things this week. There was fear in my life. Guess what? This does it for me. This is enough for me. The promise that God has given me, it's enough for me. Is it enough for you? As I began to ask the, 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 the whole staff this week, this is terrible. It must be awful to work with me. Don't say anything, staff. And so I just, I just couldn't think, hey, man, give me some kind of real specific illustration that I can use in this. I know it's changed my life. I know that I'm filled with the joy of the Lord through all of this. And I said, what, what specific applications? And they all gave good words, and they gave me good things to say. One stood above the rest. It was, it was mine. Um, it was... It, it, it wasn't mine. It was one of our staff members. But this is what they just said. It was the last one that came in. I think it says what? It says, sometimes understanding is goodness. Is application enough? Is application enough? Just reveling in the goodness of God finds its way out in our everyday life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We love you. And Lord, I know that today that there are some that do not know you.